everyone. Let's uh, let's uh, turn our attention now to the uh, this esteemed panel. When I opened on Thursday night, I said, uh, you know, part of what we are here to explore is our our perspectives, our practices, and our policies as related to climate change. And I think it's very appropriate to conclude the sim symposium with a conversation about policy. Because policy ultimately, if you can do it kind of in my graph of mathematics, which I was commanded to, was when you take your perspectives and you start thinking about practices, it almost equals then you come to policy at some point. Because policy is not birthed out of nothing. It's birthed out of at least those two, if many more things. And we're really fortunate today to have practitioners who have honed their skills and lives on the policy front, uh, which as you'll hear today, is a combination of their life experiences, constituencies, people they've met, perspectives that probably have changed over time, so we'll hear a bit about that. Our uh, moderator is Elizabeth Love, who is someone I have a privilege of getting to know. It's her role at the Houston Endowment. Um, I want to say that really big, big thanks to the endowment for uh, helping to, to really launch the Houston Coalition Against Hate. Uh, part of our conversation here has been about marginalized, vulnerable communities, and particularly at times of stress where somehow the weather becomes somebody else's, that you cause that. We live in the most, one of the most, if not the, the most diverse city in the United States, so it's a lot of possibilities, but it also has a lot of especially in times of stress. So Elizabeth is a program officer. Her bio is in the program. I won't read that. But I think as somebody who, as you can see, has really worked on the policy front very effectively to connect, as we were talking the other day at the symposium, what might seem isolated dots, public health, community development, economic development, but in fact are really connecting the tissues that make things just so with that, Elizabeth, thank you very much for your uh, willingness to be the uh, uh, moderator for this panel, and I'm just going to turn it over to you. Well, thanks, David. And I I'm going to start this panel off by doing something I've never done before, and that's to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> former California governor, former bodybuilder, former Terminator said, combating climate change requires collaboration with many levels of government. And that's the topic of our conversation today, the public sector's role in addressing climate change. Government at all levels, federal, state, and local, have a number of tools at their disposal to address climate change mitigation and adaptation. Think legislation, regulation, enforcement, procurement, subsidies, incentives, research, um, public education and outreach. On the mitigation side, governments can apply these tools to um, uh, help uh, reduce emissions and to help speed the transition to cleaner energy. There are a range of strategies that they can apply. For example, they can set standards for renewable energy production. They can help wind and solar connect to the grid. They can implement aggressive energy efficiency 
just clean fleets, as we heard the mayor just share. They can require that industry use the best available control technologies to minimize emissions. On the adaptation side, governments can do a lot to help ease the burden and the impacts to their residents of climate change. They can limit development in floodplains and in low-lying coastal areas. They can protect natural areas and green space that can hold floodwaters. They can protect communities from the public health impacts of climate change, like mosquito-borne diseases or extreme heat events. And they can incentivize a just transition to help move workers from, from, from extractive industries to those of clean, clean energy economies. And many governments across the world are doing a lot of these things. We just heard Mayor Turner talk about some of them. However, in the words of conservative UK politician Peter Ainsworth, the government's efforts to tackle climate change remain piecemeal, timid, and half-hearted. Now, Mr. Ainsworth was likely speaking about Great Britain, but I don't think it takes a, a great stretch of the imagination uh, to apply that, that sentiment across the pond here in the U.S. and in Texas. So we have a fantastic panel today of, of folks who are going to share their thoughts about government action to address climate change, what they feel the opportunities are today and in the very near future for government action, and how we as residents can engage. So I'm happy to introduce Luke Metzger, who's the Executive Director of Environment Texas, Jay Blazik-Bosley, the Executive Director of Farben City, Nakia Nelson, the Executive Director of Air Alliance Houston, and Laura Cottingham, the Chief of Staff of the Administration and Regulatory Affairs Department, and the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Houston. And you can read about each of them in, in, in your packet handouts. So Luke, I wonder if you might be willing to start us off by sharing your thoughts about the evolution of government and policy intervention and participation in climate change and, and, and the nature of where we are today. Great. Thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, I think in terms of modern uh, or kind of the last decade or so action on climate change, uh, I think it starts with uh, a Supreme Court case, uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, where the, the Supreme Court basically ordered the EPA to uh, do something about climate change. Uh, and then after that, stated that climate change endangers public health and welfare, and that has been the legal underpinning for much of what EPA did in subsequent years. Uh, and of course, then uh, under President Obama, I think we saw uh, the greatest actions on climate change of any uh, U.S. history, uh, any U.S. president, excuse me, and we saw, for example, uh, the president uh, adopting a clean power plan to require coal-fired power plants to reduce emissions, adopting fuel economy standards uh, for cars and trucks to achieve 55 miles per gallon by 2025, uh, helped uh, win congressional approval of the stimulus package, which included $90 billion uh, for clean energy relief in the, in the original agreement. Um, that uh, investment really helped to drive down the price of uh, renewable energy uh, and uh, efficient light bulbs and energy storage and, and many other of these things that Unfortunately, uh, with the new administration, uh, much of the uh, efforts uh, have been rolled back. Uh, so, of course, we heard that uh, Trump uh, took us out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, is currently uh, undoing the Clean Power Plan and the Fuel Efficiency Standards 
Fusion Trucks, um, and a number of other uh, measures, including putting chargeable EPA or Coldbog in this alternative interior apartment for residents to live on. Um, at the state level, uh, we, uh, I mean, back in 1999, uh, George W. Bush uh, helped sign into law one of the nation's first mandates for renewable power. And uh, then uh, six years later, uh, Rick Perry um, doubled that action and uh, required twice as much renewable energy. Uh, and then in the following session, 2007, the legislature doubled the mandate for energy efficiency. And in 2009, uh, the legislature, uh, the Texas Senate, approved uh, half a billion dollars in rebates for solar energy, uh, which unfortunately died. But um, it was, I think, a, a different time in Texas uh, that we were seeking to be something. And in 2009, uh, Republican Kip Abrid said, uh, he's the senator uh, and the chair of the Natural Resources Committee, he said that 30 years ago, if you uh, supported the environment, you're a communist, you could get elected. Uh, today, if you don't support the environment, you're a goober and can't get elected. Um, and um, unfortunately, uh, I think you know things have changed since 2009. You know, 2010, we saw the Tea Party wave uh, that took out a lot of moderate Republicans, um, and and so we've uh, more recently just seen attack after attack at the legislature. I believe in the t in 2015, the legislature took away took away the rights of cities to regulate fracking. Uh, in 2017, the legislature took away the rights of cities uh, or hobbled the rights of cities to hold polluters accountable, take legal action, uh, and then in this session, we're seeing uh, attacks on clean energy incentives as well. Um, so I think, um, you know, the good news is, you know, that we are still seeing uh, a number of cities like Houston um, and other uh, institutions that are you know, telling the world we're still in it, um, despite what the, you know, the president is doing, um, and we're going to keep investing in clean energy. So, for example, here in Texas, we've, we've got two cities that I mentioned, Austin and Georgetown, that are 100% renewable. Um, and uh, so there, there is, uh, uh, you know, I think when we're, we talk about climate change, it can be very depressing and daunting. Um, but uh, what gives me hope is that, you know, we are seeing action um, and it is uh, having an impact. Uh, we need a whole lot more of it, but um, we need a whole lot more of it. Well, would you, <laughs> thanks, would you speak as well to what's happening right now at the federal level with the California deal, thinking about some shoots of green that we're seeing from some of the consumer energy Republican leaning regions. A little bit about your, your thoughts about what, what the, the evolution is going to look like in the next election. Yeah, um, no, that's a great point. And I think we're, um, that's another thing that gives me hope. You know, we're, we're seeing um, now climate change, you know, where 2016 presidential election wasn't talked about at all. I know in the debates, candidates are treating themselves to be one of the greenest candidates, and so that, that, that's encouraging. Um, and I think that the Green New Deal um, setting a goal for the U.S. to decarbonize the economy in a decade, um, and uh, advanced uh, government funding of clean energy programs. Um, so I think the, the conversation needs to happen that um, uh, ideas that live up to the scale of the problem uh, are finally being talked about in a serious way. So that's really encouraging. And then on the Republican side, you know, uh, we're, uh, you know, there had been um, uh, dozens of Republicans in the Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, many of them lost election, uh, this last election, but are still 
concerned about uh, climate and energy issues with other special uh, Dean Flores, uh, Bill Flores, I'm sorry, uh, from uh, uh, Central Texas, uh, uh, Tulare Denver, who's saying that they you know solar wind on his own is you know he's concerned about these issues. And uh, you know when I read that, I was completely surprised. They, uh, it's, it, and that does give me uh, some hope that uh, this issue is really percolating up and that politicians are starting to take it seriously again. Jay, I know you think a lot about transportation and urban planning. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on, largely in Texas, but, but elsewhere as well, um, regarding those issues uh, in, in policy and yeah. legislative planning? Yeah, thank you. And um, thank you all for still being here. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, what we're all working on here is for people to get to still be here 200 years from now, um, and we need to stick to it and uh, <laughs> drink some more coffee and keep going. Um, and so uh, I, I'm hoping to tell you a story about that transportation and urban planning are crucial elements of climate change, and that decisions are happening every day at, at every level, at the city, county, the metropolitan planning organization, at state level, and at the federal level. Um, about how you live and about your lifestyle um, that are impacting our climate. Um, and, um, you know, a, a huge term is vehicle miles traveled. And how much, how much you have to drive is what that term means. And we have, as the mayor said, we are forced to drive a lot here in Houston. Um, but we're all not driving the same amount. Places and how those places are designed, um, it, different people are forced to drive different amounts. And so, if your family lives along the Grand Parkway on top of the somewhat former Katy Prairie, um, your family probably drives about 33,000 miles a year. Uh, if your family lives right around here or in Gulfton, your family probably drives about 14,000 miles a year. And so that that family living out on the Grand Parkway is imposing twice as much consumption of road, uh, twice as much emission of, of, of things out the tailpipe, twice as much need for the car itself, um, and consumption of land and destruction of trees and prairie grasses that went into building that space for cars. Um, and and safety risk. Um, they're introducing twice as much risk into the system, um, but they're probably not achieving twice as much goals. Um, it's just the neighborhood that they live in is car dependent, and it's um, we have many impoverished neighborhoods across the Houston region, like the Memorial Villages, Sienna Plantation, where there are no sidewalks, where you have no option but to drive everywhere. And these are very sad neighborhoods. Um, And so we can change this. Um, and, and the key is that any family living along the Grand Parkway is, are not bad people. Um, there are public policies all up and down the line that dictate the kind of options that you have on where to live and whether the place you live is a sustainable place to be in or not. Um, and so how do we, how do we address this? Um, a lot of my work um, is based on heroes of, of, of 
science and, and, and of, of protecting this planet for us to live on it. Um, and at some point, there's this famous story of the, in the midst of a meeting, she just went up to the chalkboard and wrote out all the points of leverage within a system. Um, and at the bottom, you have sort of changing your own behavior. You, you have like rules and regulation. But then you can move up towards um, changing the stories and then changing the whole paradigm and then framing the whole discussion differently. And so that's the work that we do at Farm and City is to change the way we look at these things based on data and research and best practices and give empower people and elected officials with new stories of how we can have a different future, how we can have a different Texas um, it, to solve these problems. And so, um, you know, a long time we had the privilege of working. Uh, I was, I, I started Farm and City a couple of years ago, moving to Austin to go to the state level. Um, I worked for Houston Tomorrow for 10 years and worked with a lot of great people on this idea of shifting the paradigm. Uh, and the, it, maybe many of you know that the people of Houston lost a great leader last year. Um, Pat Walsh was the uh, director of the City of Houston Planning Development Department. And he is credited with writing Mayor Turner's famous speech to the Texas Transportation Commission um, very soon after taking office, where Turner went Mayor Turner went to the to state leadership and said, we need a paradigm shift in transportation. We are, we are not achieving, these things aren't working. Our, our transportation system is failing. Um, and so to some extent, Pat's words and Mayor Turner's words were part of what drove me to Austin to get that done. Um, and so part of what we're doing is, is Vision Zero Texas. And if you want people to have the option to have different lifestyles and to not have to drive so much, um, you immediately might notice the problem that the sidewalks are broken and that it feels dangerous to ride a bike or to walk. Um, and the general, general lack of safety in Texas is outrageous. We are the 10 people die every single day in the state of Texas transportation system. That is the most people who die in, in the whole nation. Uh, we lead the nation in traffic deaths. And that is people, but that is people walking, biking, and in cars and trucks. Um, and so the, the grease that, 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 that we need to build more sustainable communities is safety. Um, and all of us need to be able to actually walk places. Um, and so that's what we do with Vision Zero Texas. We're working both at the state level um, and with individual cities and counties and metropolitan planning organizations. Um, the city of Laredo in January followed Austin and San Antonio to become the third government in the state of Texas to adopt Vision Zero with a goal to end traffic deaths and to use a safe systems approach um, to do that. Um, Mayor Turner has already publicly said um, and staff expects that in May, the city of Houston will follow suit and become the fourth city in the state of Texas to adopt Vision Zero. Uh, and this will be a change of how we think about transportation. Um, and we are engaged in some very interesting talks with TxDOT, and uh, the state of Texas is going to be uh, creating a council on safe systems, uh, and we hope the state of Texas itself will adopt uh, such a goal and start figuring out how less people can die on our streets and how you can feel safe um, to walk and bike and get in the car. Um, we need transit. A lot of people have talked about transit, but the thing I think a lot of people don't understand is how little we have for transit. And if you compare 
major cities with the 10 largest major cities in the United States of America. We have one-third of the amount of money being spent on transit for you than people in these other cities have. Um, the average state government in America spends about $40 per person on transit a year. The state of Texas spends $1.08. And most of that is used for rural areas. Uh, there is zero dedicated transit funding in the state of Texas for our major metropolitan areas. We, we, Texas and Ohio are the only streets with major states with major metropolitan areas that are like that, zero. Um, so some of our work is 1,000 Texans for Transit, working to change that. And, and the key there is that's one of our equity issues. And the decision of where our attention goes towards which modes, which things we fund, uh, is an equity issue. Uh, and most of, and it's a lot of people, there's a really good conversation happening in Houston about how Texas is wrong about I-45. And, and expanding the lanes on I-45 will, will, will be disastrous for the people of Houston. But it's TxDOT staff know that. They are, they, all of the money they get, 97% of it must be spent on roads. <laughs> they, they only are allowed to have a hammer and that's why everything is a nail. Um, so we need to fix that. And the equity issues are critical to all of this. And the Texas transportation decision-making system is wildly inequitable. And um, the uh, Texas Transportation Commission is five people appointed by the governor, approved by the Senate. Uh, it's currently four people. Uh, it's slightly more diverse than it was because there's one white woman along with the three white men. And um, in the whole history since 1910 of that institution, I think there have been three people of color and three women. Um, and we know from the Our Great Region survey the Houston Galveston Area Council did that women in the Houston region would spend more money on safety and sidewalks than men would. And so we are getting different decisions because of that inequity. And then just the, the, the Houston Galveston Area Council Transportation Policy Council is 28 people who decide billions and billions of dollars of what's gonna happen with your money. Um, of those 28 people, there are five women is amazing progress, and I think there's three people of color, and we are the most diverse metro region in the nation, and our transportation system is decided by that group of people, which all those people are good people, and they're working hard, and a white man can represent the interests of a, of a black woman, but it's systematically wrong, and we need to fix it. Uh, and we're getting inefficient decisions because of that inequity. Um, and then finally, we, we work on sustainability and we have a project called 50 Million Texans and how our metro regions grow is crucial. And the Houston region adds 150,000 people every year. And to whatever extent we don't allow them to live in our neighborhoods that exist already, to whatever extent we have parking requirements and other things that push them out and cover up the prairie, we're gonna have people driving more, we're gonna be paving over our land so we have to learn how to grow up. Wherever we have human infrastructure already, we have to learn to live together better. We have to accept 150,000 people into our community every year. Um, and so that's what we're doing. Um, and I hope I can press upon you that there's decisions at every single level of government, that the minimum parking requirements are a climate denial system. Um, and then not funding sidewalks is, is climate denial. Um, and, and that these decisions are made constantly. And they, a lot of things
things that we already set called environmental are crucial to my organization's next move.
mentioned the expansion of highways and how that will facilitate reduce um, traffic and, and driving and, and therefore increase our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, one of the things our organization is doing is trying to integrate health impact assessments into the transportation planning process. Um, we recently worked with um, Representative John Rosenthal to introduce House Bill 2386 and that
those are some of the ways that our organization plans over the next couple of years to um, address cities. 
So earlier I passed out a copy of our legislative agenda, and after the conference, I'm going to get up on Christian Johnson at the table and start talking about uh, uh, our ideas for this current legislative session. And um, this will, uh, I've been lobbying the legislature since 2003, so this will be my ninth session. And uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's uh, harder than it, uh, than it used to be. And uh, so we're, we approach the legislative session realistically, and uh, we're trying to do two things at the same time. One is trying to small step progress where we can, while also um, educating the public and lawmakers about the big solutions that we really need, um, like 100% clean energy or something like it, to build power uh, such that uh, when we have uh, better people in office, we can implement those big solutions. So um, our legislative agenda kind of lays out a bunch of different ideas. Um, um, this session, uh, we're mostly going to be focused on uh, defense, so unfortunately there are attacks on several good programs in the legislature. So uh, in Texas, uh, we have a $2,500 rebate to buy a winter car, for example. And unfortunately, there's a bill in the legislature uh, by a representative named Jim Murphy in the 5th uh, East District that would eliminate that rebate program. I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, there's a um, bill to uh, effectively discriminate against renewable energy uh, in the state's economic development program. And uh, so we're going to be spending a lot of energy just also um, have a proactive agenda um, that we're um, looking to advance. And we've already gotten uh, some bills filed, but bill filing deadline is this Friday. Um, and so there's still time uh, to get um, lawmakers to uh, introduce some of the big bills. And uh, my request uh, for you all would be in this next week uh, to contact your legislators and urge them to file uh, more environmental bills. We have a bunch of I good ideas, like a bill to um, set a goal to get to 100% renewable electricity for Texas, to solar ready so that uh, in a rush we're building homes and, and businesses that are going to be around for 100 years and we're taking advantage of the opportunity to make sure they don't move towards the sun and uh, you know, leave some space on the roof to put solar panels afterwards. Um, so we have a whole uh, kind of list of bills uh, that have already been drafted that we're just um, uh, orphans at the moment and we're trying to find homes for them. So um, if you can contact your legislators and urge them to uh, uh, file some bills, we've got some good ideas. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're, we don't, given the reality of Texas politics, though, we're, you know, we're not putting all of our eggs in the legislative basket, and so we're uh, working to be creative and strategic to find different pathways to make um, a difference on climate change. So, for example, um, we're also uh, working to get the University of Texas uh, to reduce methane emissions from low gas uh, drilling on their land. So UT owns about 2 million acres of land in West Texas, um, and uh, they leased to low
short term, uh, at a minimum, you know, we, we don't expect BT to, uh, to shut down those wells and stop releasing that. But at a minimum, though, they should be requiring best practices and also requiring companies who lease you know, these public lands to, to achieve best practices. So also in the uh, past hour, we're having an event uh, here in Houston uh, next uh, Monday, the 11th, uh, Mike Tilley's house, who spoke yesterday, uh, to talk more about that campaign. Uh, John Hofmeister, who's the former uh, CEO of Shell Oil, is our guest speaker. Uh, he's part of a committee that we put together of uh, leading Texans calling for BT to not do that. Um, we also, interestingly, uh, John Hofmeister, uh, a decade ago I sued, or we, we sued um, uh, together at the Sierra Club, Environment Texas did, um, over illegal air pollution. Uh, and uh, since then, you know, we've uh, found a lot of common ground and been able to work together on other issues. But litigation is also another important strategy for making progress. Uh, we've uh, together, Environment Texas and Sierra Club have successfully sued for um, use of area refineries on public lands, including ExxonMobil's Baytown facility. Uh, just this last summer, uh, we got Pasadena Refining, which is uh, also owned by the Brazilian oil company uh, Petrobras, to agree to reduce their pollution uh, in Pasadena, uh, as well as to uh, pay a $3.5 million penalty to go uh, to Hawaii or Lincoln Handles uh, for their work in Pasadena as a condition shift on their new wells. Um, so litigation is, I think, a very potent uh, you know, tool for, for getting change as well. Um, and then finally, you know, I think at the, uh, the local level, uh, more opportunities in, in the Emergency Climate Action Plan um, to make progress and uh, more uh, Environment Texas and Airlines Houston and uh, some other groups are part of a, a coalition called the Flint Breath Partnership uh, working to set kind of goals for clean energy, clean air, uh, clean uh, use of area over the next five, ten years. Uh, and you know, one of the things we'd like to see is electrifying uh, bus fleets uh, here in Houston. Uh, Mayor Turner mentioned uh, he's good friends with uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of uh, L.A. L.A. has set a goal to get to 100% electric buses by 2030. Um, I just saw that yesterday the city of New Delhi, India, uh, put in an order for 1,000 electric buses. And so uh, if New Delhi can do it, I think Houston can do it. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think uh, you know, that's a great opportunity to, uh, as uh, Metro uh, retires old diesel buses, they should replace them with new diesel buses, they should replace them with new electric. But um, fortunately, there's the uh, folks making the, the Volkswagen supplement, which uh, got uh, caught uh, cheating on their emissions. They had to pay a huge penalty. And as a result, uh, the Houston area is going to get million dollars to invest in cleaner uh, transportation. And so that's a great opportunity for uh, Metro to uh, use that money to subsidize some electric buses. Um, so yeah, so I, I think I'll leave it there. Thanks, Luke. And I, I think I've got a few questions for you all, and then, and then we'd like to open it up for questions. But I, I want to ask questions that sort of thinking of what you might want to ask this panel. So we know that the Texas Legislative Session is meeting now. legislature just meets every other year for 140 days at a time. So when, when the sessions end, it's, it's really an opportunity to engage. So, so, so knowing that we've got that opportunity now, how can we in this room um, be effective advocates? What are some real tactical strategies that, that we can use today going forward over the next, I don't know, how many days, 97 days or so, uh, 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 to, to help move the needle? Who are some of the champions in the Texas legislature who we can get behind? And how can we best communicate with those who may not be champions? 
folks who may be our own um, uh, legislators and, and, and you know, let's, Jim, you mentioned like Jim Murphy, how, how can we best communicate to those folks um, to, to change their mindset and help them come around with um, um, some of the good policy work that we'd like to see happen? Um, maybe I'll start this off with just try. And, and I think a lot of Texans think there's no chance we're butting our heads against the wall. What's the point? Um, but that some of my friends, the staffers, say the kind of rule of thumb is if five people call about an issue in a week, that means it's important to their district. Five people. So if you have four friends, <laughs> then have them all call. Um, and so that, that it really can matter when all of us ask you to write a letter or call, um, or even if you have your own issue, do it. Um, and so we, we're having a lobby day coming up in a couple weeks, Tuesday, March 12th in Austin, all about the Vision Zero. We have five bills we're working on for safe streets. Um, and so I invite you all to come. Uh, if you go to visionzerotexas.org, you can get involved there. Um, it, but take those opportunities and, and ask. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think uh, we definitely have uh, some champs in the legislature. Sometimes I think it's good to have the straight climate message, and sometimes you might decide not to talk about climate, talk about it in other ways, um, just around clean air and uh, more opportunity for economic development or um, just technology that people like gadgets and you know and cool electric cars and solar panels. You know, um, those there are, those are incredibly popular, um, including uh, among conservative Republicans. I did a, a look on Facebook and found that there are 
650,000 Texans who are identify as conservative who are interested in electric cars or renewable energy. And, you know, I think we know that the polls back that up. This, you know, this is cross-partisan. People, people like the solution. It's, there's not some kind of Association, or <laughs> or you're you're part of a super neighborhood association, or you're part of some type of um, some some type of group. Um, a lot of times, people are not aware of these issues. They're not aware of how their elected officials are voting on issues that that um, that impact them in these ways. And you can really serve your communities uh, being an, an ambassador about these issues and educating them about them as well. And so if you are a part of a civic association, you could develop a subcommittee of um, folks who are interested in the environment, raise their uh, awareness about that, and then organize a time to meet with your elected officials or organize a day where you all are going to contact them and, and have your talking points um, developed in order to be uh, more effective and more strategic. So I think there are a number of ways that some of the groups that, that you're probably um, already a part of who environmental issues may not be their focus, but because this is something of interest to you, you can get more people engaged in that process. Um, Environment Texas has a legislative uh, report card, and so um, you can use that information to show people this is how our elected officials are voting on environmental issues that are impacting climate change um, and air pollution and air quality and, and, and other environmental issues in, in our communities. So not just air, but also water and so forth. So I think um, using the tools, the, the pieces of information, um, the networks that you have available to you, and not just physical networks, also social media. Um, you know, blast things out on social media in terms of the, the legislative um, report cards so that more people are becoming aware of what's going on and how people are, um, how elected officials are voting in those circles. Because at the end of the day, um, while TCEQ doesn't uh, enforce the way that we want them to, they're also operating under a state legislature that is um, uh, encouraging them to, to behave in that manner. And that comes down to using the tools. And so voting is extremely that transit is important to all of this and transit funding, uh, Senator Kirk Watson just last week filed a whole suite of transportation funding bills that includes some transit funding, includes a thing called local options. Um, and local options would be that your local city and counties can work together to propose to the local citizens a vote to fund transit uh, or fund sidewalks and bike lanes and safe streets. Um, and with new sources of funding. Um, and the problem is that the, one of the favorite things of the legislature to do is to beat up the Austin region. <laughs> and so it's very important that this local options is not just an Austin thing. Um, and crucial there is like the Austin Transit Agency has a plan developed, a, is a very good smart plan about the high capacity transit that, that we want there. It's to do the whole thing is $8 billion. Uh, and that there's a lot of people working towards 
having a vote on that in 2020. Houston Metro has a similar plan called Metro Next that we should all get involved in that, that, that looked at the transit we need here for our population. And the price tag on Metro Next is $38 billion. And so Houston needs that local option vote more than Austin does. But I think a lot of Houston leaders um, have just thought it was hopeless. And we need you. We need Houston at that table asking for serious multimodal transportation options. Can I say something really quickly? <laughs> um, so we definitely can agree that the world is changed by those who show up. But also keep in mind that Texas is very market driven. We're very business driven. appreciate that. Um, you all, um, your work is clearly grounded in data, and you all are interested in the equity building, yet a lot of data recognizes that it undercounts for people's aspirations, and I'm wondering how you address that. Really quickly, I'll just say that in the transportation world, we have amazing data on how many cars pass under a bridge on I-10. Uh, we have amazing data on very little data on people walking. Uh, and, and, and people of color are more likely to be hit and killed while walking. And so the total lack of data on how people actually use our transportation system now um, is a problem. And we need to, there are lots of efforts to fix that. I, I would say um, our organization, in terms of how we account for it um, from, a, from a data perspective,
that there's sort of environmental justice things that are required at the MPO level, where the analysis that's done is just sort of meaningless. And where, but you can actually look at where the money is going and which communities the money is going to. Uh, and so part of the problem is just asking the right questions of the data. It's not partisan, and it's bipartisan. It's being supported by both Republicans and Democrats, and it's um, effective for a bipartisan perspective. Whoever's the revenue neutral, money for the American people, um, promotes not growth from three of the three energy sectors, and it's not expensive to control, and it's actually supported by the capitalists and, and some other groups. So. City, strategic, very nice. <laughs> so how do we bridge that divide between the rural, oftentimes red areas and our you know, bluer areas in the city? And that goes to everybody. So maybe the point is like a lot of what we try to do is for Farm and City, there were really two think tanks in Texas. There was the right wing one and the left wing one. And there's a lot left in between. And so we all have to learn to talk to each other is the global point. Um, and so in the Vision Zero transportation safety world, the rural areas of Texas are extremely dangerous. <laughs> and also the metropolitan urban areas of Texas are extremely dangerous. And both of them don't have the funding and strategies that needed to protect their people. And both of those communities desperately would like these things to not be so dangerous and would like for their family members not to die on the roads. And so uh, there was a plan a couple of years ago put together by some TxDOT staff um, about transportation safety. It was a $3 billion plan that was mostly focused on rural roads. Um, and it would have saved, I think it's like 300 lives a year by just change like two lane rural roads are the most dangerous thing we have. Um, 
that was never funded. And so that movement is a statewide movement. And it's not just your spandex bicyclists in the city, it is your rural communities that really suffer too. So um, I, I think when you actually look at data and start working with people, a lot of these problems are cross-cutting, you know? And um, Hurricane Harvey uh, impacted every single type of county across, across the, this whole area. And so I think that's, we have to, if you just look at the data, people are suffering and we have to work together to fix some things. My question
just wanted to add on the, the water side. Um, we have a good amount of data, but a lot of it doesn't get out to the public. So for example, um, we did a report last year that found that more than half of the freshwater swimming areas in Texas had uh, unsafe levels of fecal bacteria at least once in 2017. Um, you know, one of the bills we're shopping around is um, the idea of creating a, a public website to, um, for the public to be able to have access to that data. If you go swimming on a Gulf beach, you can go to texasbeachwatch.com and find out whether it's safe to swim or not. There's nothing similar for freshwater swimming areas, and you can go on and create one at texasswimmingbills.com. So another bill you can ask legislators to help you with. Great. Thank you. I just learned about an amazing example really quick that maybe you work on. Uh, my friend is working for the U.S. Green Building Council, and they have a bill um, to require ISDs in the state of Texas to test if there's lead in the drinking water at schools because there are many schools in Texas that we don't know. And I was shocked to learn that that's a bill that we need at this time. <laughs> yeah, two other quick things. Uh, we do know that actually uh, HISD did testing, and I think 90% of the schools found at least some lead, um, and only some of the schools have actually done anything about it. Um, second thing, Bakita reminded me, um, we have a website called neighborhoodwitness.org um, where you can sign up to get alerts anytime a um, facility here in Harris County violates their clean air permits. You'll get an email the very next day um, letting you know exactly what they put out, what kind, and giving you the chance to file a complaint with TCEQ. So I'd encourage folks to sign up for that service. <laughs> and, um, and one more thing, uh, we're in the process. We, we've created a tool called the Brief Tool. You can access it at briefhouston.org. Um, and on that tool, you can see where the air monitors are. Um, this is all TCEQ data that we've basically pulled from their website and tried to make it more accessible um, to the public. But you can see where all the air monitors are, what they're measuring for. You can see emissions events that have taken place. Um, you can see if your neighbors have filed complaints uh, on that site as well. So it has uh, TCEQ um, like a complaint data. Um, you can see where schools are located. You can apply political boundaries to that. So if you want to see how many facilities are in your district, um, the district that you live in, whether it's the city council level, your school board district, state representatives, uh, you can apply those political boundaries and see um, and get a summary report of how many facilities are within your district, are within your district, what emissions events have taken place, what uh, the number of complaints and so on. So I encourage you to use that tool and I also encourage you to give us feedback because it's the first version of the tool. <laughs> and so it's called the Breathe tool and you can access it at breathehouston.org. version of the tool and so uh, please give us feedback good and bad in terms of how to make the tool more accessible and user friendly um, for um, your neighbors. I think we have time for one more question. I know that we had one over here. Oh, the microphone's coming to you. I have a million questions but I, this is the one I think is that I want the answer. What can be done probably any, almost anywhere else in the newsroom. And that sure could save a lot of problems as far as, as um, air emission. If, if, if just safety and 
get out and walk a, a child. We need nature. We've got to walk there. So there you go. How can we make our streets, our sidewalks, safer? Who can I talk to? Safer for, for children, babies. Um, there's a new nonprofit organization called Link Houston. And Link Houston's focus is on increasing alternative transportation modes and also making um, uh, transportation more equitable throughout the, throughout the region. And so I would encourage you to reach out to Link Houston to learn more about uh, what efforts they have underway because they are addressing um, some of those issues in terms of uh, just dis disability access uh, on public transit as well as the, the issues that you're mentioning right now. They recently released a report um, about transit equity in, in the Houston region and identified the 10 deadliest um, intersections throughout the county as well. So I encourage you to look at that report. But can I add to that? Just that this is that's an issue we're comparing to. Austin is very useful. Um, the city of Houston needs a pedestrian master plan and an ADA transition plan. Um, and could be sued right this moment about the ADA transition plan side of that. Um, the city of Austin has had the key part is there is a prioritization matrix of what are the very high priority and high priority sidewalks. So we need a lot more money for sidewalks, but we need to spend it where we the most people could use it. So it's crucial to have that map. Uh, and we need money for sidewalks. And there will be a big transit vote in November. The city of Houston should have at least $100 million for sidewalks on that vote in November, um, and Harris County should be putting at least $100 million into sidewalks, and that's what we should do. We should call, call Harris County commissioners and judge and call City of Houston Council and the mayor and say, we need, you need to be putting money into sidewalks now. And then I just also wanted to add that you can also get involved in um, the, the MPO HGAC uh, Houston Galveston Area Council have a pedestrian bicycle subcommittee that falls under the, the transportation uh, policy council. So essentially, what the what these subcommittees do is make recommendations up the chain. So the you can and, and members of the public um, can can attend those meetings. You can go to their website and see when they are. But the more people who um, can put pressure on um, HGAC. HGAC, they're the facilitators, but um, the Transportation Policy Council is made up of um, elected officials, and those are who make the ultimate policy decisions about how the transportation dollars get allocated. But you can certainly have a voice at the uh, at bike uh, subcommittee. Thank you, and, and we've, we've, we've come to the end of our time, and I'd like just to share how our panelists encouraged us to get involved, to call our legislators, to go to public meetings, to call our four friends if we have them, <laughs> or more. Um, you know, at the end of the day, though, that's just that, that just takes a, an, an hour or two out of out of our days. These guys are working on this all day, seven days a week. They are working to nudge public, the public sector, and decision makers to do the right thing. So I, I, I would also like to note another thing we can all do is support these organizations and the work that they're doing every day. You can support them. You can 
tell your friends about these groups and you can get involved. So I really, really encourage you to support the work that they're doing day in and day out every single day. So if we can show our appreciation to our panelists, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and thanks for, for your interest. and are between you and your car. But this is a really important part of the session. The bus. The bus. No Uber alone. I, these are all the takeaways. But I want to say something because I'm reminded of this panel, and Elizabeth really summarized it really well. A lot of things we heard over the last two and a half days are somewhat disparaging remarks about lobbyists and about servants and public officials. I want to say that it's like everything, you know, that you cannot do that with one sweep. Because what you heard today are men and women whose vocation, whose ethic, whose calling is to put practice in the public sphere. And I just want to give them thanks because I've done it and it's not easy work. It's Sisyphean. As you hear, you think you make progress in three sessions later, you're behind where you started. Can we give them another big round of applause for all the work they do? Thank you.